Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Angela Bassa. Angela is the Director of Data Science at iRobot. Angela, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks so much, Sam. I'm happy to be here. I am super excited to have you on the show and to get into a little bit of what you're up to there at iRobot. Uh, to kind of get us started, uh, I'd love to hear a bit about your background and how you came to be working at the intersection of robotics and data science. Yeah, so my background is um, mathematics, and I came to the intersection of robotics and data science through a an enormous amount of luck. <laughs> I think um, most people who come into uh, data scientific practice either come from uh, sort of the analytical, mathematical, physics sort of background, or they come from computer science and software development uh, and software engineering. And I am very much on the first camp, and I am trying to learn as much as possible from the second camp's fire hose. Okay. Um, my uh, my academic training uh, is in applied math. Uh, this was back at MIT. Since then, I left. My sort of journey into data science was always through a heavy use of data, but under many different disciplines. So I worked in investment banking, uh, in strategy consulting, and agricultural technologies, and uh, marketing and energy trading. I, I noticed I, that you had an incredibly broad background set of experiences before you found your way to into data science. Yeah, I think it's sort of reflective of my my personal and family history as well. So I'm uh, I'm a third generation immigrant uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, my family is sort of very transient and almost nomadic. And I think that has translated into my career as well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And it's also, uh, I mean, all jokes aside, it's actually something that I find comes quite easily to me. So um, growing up, we spoke several languages at home, and um, I find it very easy now in a professional capacity to understand that some people are speaking HREs, whereas some people are speaking engineerese. Mm-hmm. or some people are speaking analytics ease and to be able to, to provide that translational step has a huge amount of value, especially in a discipline like data science, where uh, there's, there's sort of this division between the tools and the mechanics of how you solve problems mm-hmm. and uh, the, the domain expertise of knowing which questions to ask and which problems are, are worthy of being solved first. Right. And so playing that that midfield there uh, has proven uh, incredibly valuable and, and transferable. Thank goodness. <laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, you mentioned that you your academic background was in applied math. What any particular focus or flavor? Um, I liked graph uh, theory quite a bit. Okay. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, in that domain um, and also uh, logic and, and uh, first order logic sort of model theory. Um, but I learned very early on that academia wasn't going to be my thing. I just don't have the personality fit um, <laughs> for for that. Uh, I, actually, more more than a personality fit, I actually don't have the diligence to focus that long on a single mm-hmm. problem. Yeah. So um, I ended up going into industry where my particular flavor of ADHD um, is actually quite valuable. I mentioned that you are at iRobot, as did you. 
I, I imagine folks are familiar with iRobot, but maybe you should share a little bit about uh, the company and the, the focus of the company um, just to level set. Yeah, happy to. So iRobot is, uh, a lot of folks actually don't know, but iRobot is almost 30 years old. So um, we've been around for quite a while. I've been here for about two and a half years now, and I started the data science uh, practice here. We've been growing uh, uh, quite a bit over the last two and a half years, Uh, but obviously uh, iRobot builds uh, robots, and so we have lots of of fantastic algorithmists and and machine learning engineers, uh, many of whom uh, predate my tenure here. But now we have sort of a focused competency uh, whose mandate it is to look at fleet data and to make sure that we are using that information uh, and feeding that back into the development of products, into the customer experience, um, and into the strategy. So um, at iRobot, we're we're well known for our flagship product, which is the Roomba, the robotic vacuum cleaner. And we have a whole line of robotic vacuums. There's not just one. So um, depending on what uh, specifically uh, a customer might be looking for, we have different offerings with different levels of of, uh, data-driven features and, and autonomy. And we also have the Brava line, which is a robotic mops. And we just announced earlier this year the Terra line of robotic lawnmowers. So uh, more and more, we have this portfolio of, of autonomous products that can take care of your home so you can do other stuff. Uh, if you're like me, you can be a nerd. Uh, I'm what one would call an endorsement. So I don't use my free time to go outside. But if you like that, then you can do that while your robots are back home, <laughs> making sure that everything is sparkling clean. You mentioned that you started the data science group there at iRobot. Did you do that from... Uh, internally, were you already at iRobot or did you join the company to start the, the group? The latter. Okay. So um, I was uh, at a company called Enernoc before and I was also brought in uh, to run their data science team, although they already had uh, the team in place when I joined. They had um, two, I think, two or three people uh, working in data science there uh, at the time. And here at iRobot, I was the first uh, the first data science hire that they had. And there's always, you know, pros and cons as to uh, whenever you're starting uh, a team, especially in established organizations. So it's very different if your product is data scientific. At that point, you probably have data science challenge that's that's built in from either the founding team or at least very close to inception. Whereas when you're coming into uh, an organization that is established and that has uh, a product or an industry that they, that they work within and you're starting to infuse that organization uh, with data and data-informed decision-making, there are certain times where it makes sense to start with more junior talent and just spelunking and figuring out what value you can extract from that data, or you can start very top-heavy and and have more of a a strategic or even a structural uh, approach to it. And and iRobot chose the latter, lucky for me. And I've been very diligently uh, making sure that they never think that that was a bad decision <laughs> on their part. How did the company even come to know that it needed data science? What precipitated, you know, creating the, the opening and opportunity for you to join the company? Um, so I like to believe that um, it's because some people with a lot of foresight uh, who were here before me 
saw that as part of the vision, uh, as a compelling part of the story of what we're trying to do. So when you read about what iRobot is doing right now, um, we're talking very openly about this this bet that we're making on the smart home and what we think that smart home ecosystem is going to mean going forward. But it all started, you know, with a, with a small step towards connecting our products to the cloud and allowing those products to leave artifacts um, for us to be able to inspect. And uh, one of the things that has always been at the front, forefront here has been uh, the, the utmost stewardship that we have of that data. Um, this data is not being generated from, uh, you know, pings that uh, your mobile phone uh, is making to the cloud that you carry on you. This is coming from inside your home. This is, you know, one of your most precious uh, havens. And to to allow somebody, uh, to allow a company to come in and um, and autonomously, right, uh, approve that environment and report back is something that has to be done with a lot of trust. And so I think part of the, the, the strategy internally was to make sure that all of that was in place uh, before uh, letting a whole bunch of nerds loose uh, spelunking on that data. <laughs> so so we had, go ahead. I was just going to ask you to elaborate a bit on what that data is and where it comes from. Yeah, so um, in late 2015, we had our, our first connected product and uh, we started um, aggregating that information. And so the information that we get uh, always with the permission of our customers has to do with the functioning of the robot. So we're interested in identifying bugs before our customers um, are bothered by them, before uh, they impact the functioning uh, of the functionality of the robot. We're interested in understanding how our customers use their robots. So, you know, one thing that's always important to keep in mind is that I'm not the person who should be asking the questions because I am a, a very specific type of nerd who has very nerdy questions. And there's only one of me. And there's millions and millions of all of us. So uh, we as a company want to make sure that we're answering the questions uh, of all of our customers. And so the data that we're collecting helps inform what our customers want from our products that maybe we haven't ideated yet. And then it helps us develop that. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is that we, you know, we never sell that data. Um, that data is not the thing that we uh, make money off of. The, the data is essentially the thing that allows us to do what our customers want from their product better than anybody else. Yeah, one of the things that I found, so I was at the AWS ReMars conference uh, a few weeks ago, and iRobot had a big presence at that uh, event as well. And you know, one of the things that I realized was that I just had a very dated view of the company and the products. Like I remember when the Roomba first came out, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was pretty dumb. Like, you know, you just turn this thing on and it would like bounce in a wall and kind of randomly change direction. And the idea was that like, if you kept this thing charged up enough and let it do it enough, it would eventually clean up, you know, a room, right? As opposed to, you know, what I saw today was, you know, there were some visualizations that were like a total, like a slam type of, uh, um, you know, process where the, these robots have all kinds of sensors and they're like mapping out their environments dynamically and, you know, uh, employing some sophisticated, relatively sophisticated, certainly relative to, you know, what I recall 
algorithms to make sure that they're cleaning up all the parts of your house. And then you're getting into this notion of like collaborative cleaning with either multiple, like the, you know, how does the broom robot work with the mop robot to clean a house? Like it's, it's a lot more. It's like, it's not your, you know, not your father's Roomba anymore or something like that. It's (laughs) a lot more sophisticated than I remembered. Well, I think 15, 20 years ago, uh, a lot of things uh, in in hindsight look dumber. I certainly look dumber uh, when I think of myself 15, 20 years ago. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think that's that's apt. So um, the the robots today. I mean, the thing that happens with uh, a company. That, that has been around for almost 30 years is you have all of these uh, code bases with a lot of institutional knowledge and a lot of love and passion embedded in there. And so it's hard to just say, yeah, we're going to start over. Yeah, no problem. All the people who came before, what could, it, what could they have possibly known? Mm-hmm. And it's hard to do that, but that's sort of a little bit of what it takes. It takes discharging a lot of technical debt and, and starting fresh to be able to do all of these things. And today, you know, the, the Roombas and the Bravas, um, they can, some of the models, they can work together. So you can tell um, your Roomba and your Brava to, to tackle, uh, to tag team on, on a task. And so um, your Roomba might know exactly where it is. And so if you want the kitchen and the dining room to get cleaned and mopped, then the Roomba can dispatch and go to the kitchen, finish as it's moving to the dining room. It communicates with the Brava mop that the kitchen is all done, that the the mopping can start there and it moves into the dining room. And then when it's finished with the dining room, it lets the Brava know that it can follow along. And so then both of those rooms get uh, vacuumed and mopped and you don't have to lift a finger. And with the Roombas, those um, also have the clean base now. So the, the, the top models have the clean base. So the Roomba can dock itself and the base vacuums the bin of the robotic vacuum and stores that. So you don't have to touch it for sometimes weeks or months at a time until you have to empty the clean base. So this, this idea of autonomy is something that uh, at least our modern product line uh, is already delivering on and uh, the whole product line is always evolving towards. But what we're going towards really uh, is beyond autonomy, which is something that Colin uh, Engel, our CEO, talked about at Remars as well, which is intelligence is an autonomy, right? Um, If you autonomously can do something, that's great. That's better than than not doing it and and to require uh, active direction. But um, if you can coordinate and um, if you can be responsive and collaborative and if you can be part of a system that enables uh, all of that collaborative, responsive autonomy to take place, uh, then then you're really talking about the, the transformative power of data, which is sort of what we're building our platform to be able to leverage. Is there an example of that in the context of uh, Roomba in particular or robotics or iRobot in general, like uh, how intelligence is you know, greater than autonomy? Yeah, I think the, the one example would be um, if you can send uh, a robot to, to perform a mission right in the parlance. So if you can send a robot to go and clean a room, um, that's great. But if you can tell that robot where in that room to... Uh, spend more of its time, uh, either because um, you know that there's a particular stain or you know that there is a particular area that needs to be um, focused on. Or if you 
um, know that the uh, that that another robot in the family should follow along. And so if you can report back that you've identified there's something uh, amiss in this region or that region. So the way that Colin sort of articulated it, which was really clever, uh, not just because he's my CEO, actually <laughs> thought this was very clever, um, is um, if you think of, of the example of astronauts, right? If you have somebody who is able to make it to the moon and back, that's great. But if they're, or make it to Mars and back, but if, if they're there and they have gone through a battery of, of training to make sure that they can withstand the journey, they don't have infinite RAM, so they can't know all of the things. So if you have somebody back in Houston who can tell them, hey, that rock over there that you're not paying any attention to because you're not a geologist, but I am, pick it up and bring it home. Bring a sample because I want to know what that is, right? So if if that uh, relationship goes beyond just a, a relationship of autonomy, but a relationship of responsiveness so that you can act on that information while it is relevant rather than only after uh, the payload has been delivered, um, that's really where, where we're driving towards. And so when you think about applying data science in this context, how do you break down the different roles and, and places that you're applying data science. Um, and I guess I'm, you know, I'm thinking of it kind of crudely in terms of use cases, maybe like, you know, I'm imagining you could apply this to, you know, certainly the autonomy of the robots within the home. There are like predictive maintenance types of use cases. There are like business things like how many of the people that buy these things actually use them and how many of the people, you know, um, that, you know, buy them and use them a lot probably want to see like the next bigger version because, you know, their current one, you know, isn't doing something as good as it could be or like what are all the, like how do you think about, not what are all of them, but how do you taxonomize the different ways that data science plays at, at iRobot? I think the, the way that I like to think about it is in terms of the, the utility uh, of each of the different projects and, um, and their priority within the, the great, greater strategy that we have both in R&D and uh, in iRobot as a whole. So um, especially as I was uh, saying before, when, when you have a company that has a product that is data scientific, right? The thing that you are selling is the knowledge that you have about the data that you collect. It's a completely different ballgame. But uh, in the sense of iRobot, where our product uh, is this physical uh, robot and the data really plays a supporting role, to that, I think the, the thing that you want to uh, focus on is the fact that data science is not a, uh, a, a cheap investment. And so as, as I stood up the practice here, the first thing that was top of mind is making sure that we demonstrate a return on that investment. Because uh, the thing that I have seen happen uh, in, in similar cases is that there's this, this image of the potential of what uh, what this practice could deliver. And then um, that potential isn't realized in the very near term and everybody gets disenchanted and it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy that it was never gonna work. Mm. 
Uh, and that happens over and over uh, when you're talking outside of sort of the, the, the Silicon Valley data-driven um, startup ecosystem. And that's the thing that I was most cognizant of is what are the things that we can deliver in the very short term with the information that we already have. I don't want to re-architect anything yet. I don't want to change how our software gets uh, developed or how uh, data gets uh, encoded and, and, and ingested and transformed, processed, stored, all of that. Uh, based on the things that we've inherited, what, what exists of value that we can deliver in the very short term? And then based on uh, the, the momentum that you can generate there, um, you can start recruiting champions and you can start recruiting stakeholders that can help you make the more foundational uh, changes mm -hmm. that enable really big bets. So here at iRobot, you know, one of the big bets that we're making is um, on the smart home and what that will mean and uh, who will win in that space. And, and our bet is that uh, we will win because of uh, both our, our capability and our expertise and uh, our commitment to customer privacy and all of these things rolled into one. But that's not something that could have been accomplished in the first six months. Right. And so I really try to think uh, in terms of sort of your near term horizon and your long term horizon. So your near term horizon are the things that your data is already bringing to you that if only somebody were to pay attention to it. Right. You could um, you can make smarter decisions. And so those are easy. You just need to dedicate the time and effort to look at the tactical to to. Uh, chat across the organization to figure out who could do, who could make better decisions if only uh, somebody could help them understand how things are getting used. And that's all already uh, instrumented. But uh, that's really sort of, quote unquote, bootstrapping the really big uh, play, which then requires, uh, you know, improved data architecture and um, all of the things that come that 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 come downstream from that in terms of uh, data quality, lineage, governance, uh, mm -hmm. all of those other other things that that are important. Yeah, I find this this conversation really interesting, and it's one that I when I talk to folks that are you know running data science organizations or you know machine learning AI organizations, centers of excellence, things like this. This the whole concept of how they manage and balance their portfolios so as to kind of demonstrate short-term value, you know, enough short-term value um, while also kind of keeping their eye on, you know, a broader vision and, you know, selling that or making progress to that. Like it's a very delicate balance in a lot of places and one that, you know, a lot of energy is put towards. Yeah, and it's really easy to sort of hire a team. I mean, it's not easy, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's quite possible to hire a team of 100 people, mm -hmm. uh, all, you know, experts uh, and, and, and really fantastic professionals and throw them at a problem. And then they will, you know, come up with all of these, I mean, they really are fantastic ideas that will require two years of additional instrumentation and m further investment. And um, I like to joke that if we were to do the things that I want to do, we go bankrupt because <laughs> I'm not... Uh, the, the target audience for this, right? There, there are lots of uh, robotics companies that find it very difficult to, to stay 
uh, in the market for as long as iRobot has uh, to, to do uh, these things in a cost-effective way. Uh, and, and that's the game for us, is how can we uh, deliver on the promise of consumer robotics in a way that isn't going to extinguish itself because, you know, we've, we've bitten off more than we can chew. So this very measured approach um, can be quite frustrating at times because it, it can feel like you're, you're funding the, uh, the least interesting parts of the journey, when in fact it's quite the opposite. Um, what, what I feel like I'm doing is I'm clearing the midfield so that uh, my, my key players can then be able to take amazing shots uh, without having this, this constant oversight and this demanding voice that uh, why haven't we uh, paid for ourselves yet? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sounds like you're a football fan. <laughs> <laughs> I am, and I call it football. For me, it's soccer. <laughs> so for, for folks who, who might be listening in who don't know, I was actually born and raised in Brazil, and I have just starting to started to learn uh, American football rules. So... Um, now it gets really confusing. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so how, how big is the data science team there now? Um, so we have a, a blended team. So we don't have uh, just data scientists okay. in our data organization, which is also something that I think is, is uh, fundamental to our success so far. Uh, we started with uh, data scientists, uh, but as we've... Um, grown uh, the, the, the portfolio of, of solutions that we offer internally and in our production environment, we've, we've been um, adding specializations. So we have a blended team of uh, data architects, data stewards, data engineers, data analysts, and data scientists that, that help us cover all of the different things that we have on our roadmap. How many on the data team there? So on the data team per se, I think we have 12 people right now. One of the things that I wanted to dig into a little bit is how you have built out processes and platforms to support delivering models into production and you know doing the work of the, the team. Can you talk a little bit about the you know, both the philosophy there, but also like try to get us to kind of concrete details around, you know, some of the things you're doing. So for a company like iRobot, one of the things that we had to do was we had to discharge a lot of technical debt. So um, a lot of our products uh, originally were uh, each one independent a platform. And so they had uh, a code base uh, and all of the ancillary things that go with that, that were independent of each other. And that made it so that each platform was robust and, and there are lots of benefits with that in terms of manufacturing. But one thing that uh, proved uh, less than helpful was the fact that there was very little modularization. So it was hard to be able to reutilize learnings uh, and to shift priorities uh, as they needed to, to happen. So one of the things that uh, we recently underwent was was a reorganization where um, we brought data science specifically uh, closer to engineering and closer to product management. And we've also um, created a new design language and a shared code base that's modularized so that uh, the different pieces of the 
software can be interoperable. And so things like navigation and mapping, things like Wi-Fi connectivity and all of those parts of of the the, the platform can now um, be uh, plug be almost plug and play with the different products that that we develop. And what that does is it it really allows us to to be much faster in our ability to to write software. And so what we're uh, moving towards are these robots that become smarter over time. So um, hardware is very different than software. You can't just release an OTA and get new hardware and new injection molded plastic and in people's hands, mm-hmm. but you can do that with software. And so if we can have a smart platform um, that uh, is part of the hardware that can receive a improved uh, direction over time, then that allows us to be able to, to solve the problems that our customers have uh, in more intelligent ways. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, we essentially embarked on that uh, not too long ago, and uh, we've been operating under that model for, the, the, for all of 2019, essentially, where um, we have now a, uh, a, data, a, a DevOps culture, and we have a cloud uh, culture, and we have a data-driven culture that uh, is imbued into all of the different teams so that they can leverage the power uh, of this new design language that that is shared across all of our products. Mm-hmm. And so, when you say design language, what does that what does that really mean? So, um, it means a lot of things. One of the things, for instance, is we used to have a, a um, homegrown uh, coding language for some of our robots because of the restricted nature of the compute. That was available to them to them which is perhaps what might have made them feel less than intelligent 15 20 years ago mm-hmm. um, but moving forward into into the present and the future uh, that just wasn't going, going to cut it and so a lot of our code base right now is in python and uh, that helps both in terms of attracting talent but also in terms of shifting talent around and shifting learnings around and are we um, talking about code on the robot or code somewhere else yes and so yeah. um, uh, not all of the parts are in uh, the, the the new paradigm yet because this is this is a transition, but a lot of it, uh, both on robot and off. And also in terms of the uh, the types of things that can happen on the robot, um, you know, there's a lot more uh, power that the robots have, uh, you know, for, for the things that, that they're capable of doing right now. So if you're going to have teaming take place, um, all of that needs to happen and it needs to happen on the edge so that that information doesn't necessarily need to get uh, sent back home for things to work sure. the way that they should. Sure. Yeah, it strikes me that there's, you know, platform in, in this conversation is going to be a little overloaded in the sense of the robot itself is a platform. It's a hardware platform. And then you've got a software platform sitting on that hardware platform. And then you've got, that's presumably connected to the cloud, right? AWS, that's a, a platform. And so, you know, in that kind of environment, where does DevOps come into play and how... How is that used, presumably, to help tie all these things together? So 
the way that it comes into play is twofold. I think one is just as a uh, mentality that all of the software developers uh, need to have in terms of, of the level of ownership of code. But on top of that, I think uh, the, the, as you described, a different layering. Um, so we want to have um, folks work on the things that they're good at, the things that they're passionate at and not on the things that are unnecessary. So in the same sense, and I'm gonna speak data scientifically because just that that's what comes easier to me. So the same kind of mentality applies to data science. And I'm gonna to speak to data science because that just comes more easily to me. But in both data science and machine learning, you, you want to have that same DevOps culture where you don't wanna spend 80% of your time cleaning data. You want to spend 80% of your time figuring out how your data is dirty and then writing code that solves it. So you, the next person doesn't have to do that as well. So um, that has to come individually from each member of our team, but we also have uh, a team dedicated to maintaining uh, all of those different layers, uh, both on the, the hardware platform, the software platform, and the cloud platform. I don't know if that's, that answers your question. Uh, kind of, it starts to get us there. What is that team called? So um, that team is the cloud ops team. I guess one, one question that I've got is, you know, as, as a company that kind of ships these products that are inherently platforms, I'm wondering if you also have like horizontal, you know, platforms or tools or processes that are, you know, just how you develop models at iRobot or how you, you know, do experimentation or how you do deployments that are kind of independent of the individual uh, robotics platforms or, you know, because you're developing these like highly integrated things, you know, is everything very specific to one product? Well, that's the crux of it. So we were handicapped by the fact that um, we were faced with, with exactly what you're describing, where we had all of these different uh, distinct platforms. And so, um, as you well know, and as your audience knows, machine learning requires a lot of training data. Mm -hmm. And so how can we train uh, these models uh, with, with the, 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 ultimate objective of having them be as robust as possible. And so there's a lot of, of information that, um, that these different uh, formally distinct platforms were collecting that weren't distinct at all. So that information should be able to all be used, but it couldn't because they were coming in through disparate uh, mechanisms, using different schemas, using uh, different code bases. And so part of this re-architecture has really been to have uh, a unified, uh, and we call it a design language, because it applies both to the, the industrial design of the hardware, but also the uh, code plasticity underlying all of that. And so now that we have this, this unified uh, shared uh, platform, all of the information that comes in uh, is much more uh, readily available for, for utilization in different models. And so part of what we're doing um, is increasing the personalization of our products. And to do that, you know, if I, if you're interested in ever increasing autonomy, you don't want to have to worry about actually sending your robot out 
uh, to clean your home. You want that to just automatically happen and you don't want to have to worry about it. And so one of the things that uh, we imagined we should do and now we do is as you are um, using your robot over time, we learn how you like to clean your home, when you like to clean your home. Are there specific rooms that you like to clean um, with different rates? And so we can make recommendations for you on when you should run your robot or during what times in what rooms so that you can just say, yes, please do this for me and stop right. bugging me. Right. And then the robot will take over. And if you have one with a clean base, then the robot will take over and it will um, run its its cleaning missions uh, on the frequency that you've specified. And you only touch it when the clean base is full. And so one of the things that's important to keep in mind with something like that is you're actively telling your customer to not engage with your product. So you have to make sure that you've covered all your bases so that your, your product is working as intended uh, in an unsupervised way for as long as it does. So what's the experience from the data scientist perspective? Like they, there's now, now post this re-architecture they do they is there a centralized place like a data warehouse or something where they access all of this data and then um are there specific tools that they are able to use now to build models that are independent of you know where those models are ultimately gonna run from a, a robot perspective uh like how what is that what services or experiences does that layer provide for the data scientists that need to work on these uh, different models for these different robots? It really depends on the use case, right? So if you have a robot and your robot uh, has sent you a message for whatever reason, and so it's blinking and you go and you look in your app, and if your app is not reflecting exactly what your robot is saying, you're going to think that we don't know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So that's one use case where it's, you know, it has to be extremely low latency and fairly high concurrency. So that uh, use case for how for our data management is very specific, um, whereas for the data scientists, as you asked, we don't really have a, a need for for extremely low latency because it's, a, it's sort of a research environment that as we discover things that we would like to do, um, we can then go into our data lake and swim in it. So there are these different architectures that serve different purposes as well they should. So in our data lake uh, environment where our data scientists are doing a lot of their, their researching, that's now a centralized place um, that has um, reduced a lot of the overhead that our data scientists uh, need. So a lot of the processing is taking place centrally and, um, and we've abstracted a lot of the, the complexity of, of aggregating and transforming all of that uh, in our lake mm -hmm. so that the data scientists are, are um, essentially dealing with, with derived data sets that already are in the format that is shared across all of our different products and right. all of our different uh, platforms, so, that, so to speak. That data lake, um, is that... What is that? Is that S3 or Redshift or something else or some combination of, you know, other things? It's a combination because of the the different requirements of how that uh, uh, those different data stores are traversed. So um, for the data scientific case in particular, we rely quite a lot on Athena. Okay. 
um, for for the, the the querying and and the the creation of of uh, extracts uh, for for research. Uh, one important thing to note as well is that there are uh, significant access controls to all of these different parts of the environment, and um, there are also the the, the different parts of the, the data lake that can be uh, hashed or tokenized. Um, so I don't necessarily need to know what you call a particular room. I just need to know that you care enough that you've named things, right? Like I don't need to mm-hmm. know what you call your robot, right. um, but I would like to know that you love it enough that you've named it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, those types of, of data uh care and and maintenance mm-hmm. are the things that that we've centralized so that you don't have to worry whether the data scientist knows enough to not go spelunking what they're not supposed to and we're really trying to protect our data scientists from themselves and so you've got the this data lake environment that is uh, Athena and uh, other things depending on the use case what are the types of tools that data scientists are typically using there? Are you doing a lot of deep learning types of things with uh, TensorFlow and that kind of stuff or scikit-learn or what does the modeling experience look like from a data scientist perspective at iRobot? I try not to be too dogmatic uh-huh. Uh, just because different tools uh, are appropriate for different use cases. So when we're still in the uh, ideating and, and researching phase, uh, we've used things uh, that run the gamut. Um, and one of the things that I mentioned is once these processes are actually uh, running uh, on the robot, they're running in, in a resource-constrained environment. So when we're learning things about the information that we uh, have access to, those are running on our own uh, hardware, uh, our own compute, uh, not necessarily our own hardware. Sometimes Amazon owns the hardware, but still, (laughs) those are, uh, we have a lot more flexibility with what we use and how it will be appropriate. And then it's on us uh, for whatever algorithms need to run on board the the robot um, to make sure that they're uh, optimized so that they can run in the restricted compute environment. So as far as what we're using, I mean, yes, we do use TensorFlow. We use um, uh, different libraries. We certainly use scikit-learn as well. Um, And in terms of uh, what kind of uh, methodologies we're using internally, I mean, you mentioned SLAM. Uh, You know, iRobot has uh, a pretty strong uh, published presence uh, in the development of vSLAM. Um, But there are uh, myriad other um, algorithms that that we use as well. Um, and we have teams that focus on deep learning. We have a team that focuses on reinforcement learning um, for all sorts of different use cases that uh, I can't actually describe yet until we launch, uh, mm-hmm. but they're imminent. So um, yeah, we have a, a pretty strong bench uh, in terms of, of the different methodologies that we make use of. And I, I mentioned, we both mentioned SLAM at this point, and I did not define it earlier. It's simultaneous. Simultaneous? Is that Localization the and mapping. Localization yep, and mapping. Right. Yeah. So how the robot's able to go out into the world and kind of figure out where it is and map it, its environment. And if you've never seen it, uh, it's pretty remarkable. It's a pretty I awesome mean, demo. Yeah. It is. And I, I have, uh, uh, I mean, I have a million robots. Um <laughs> it's uh, it's one of the perks of the job having to test all of these things. But nice. <laughs> um, I actually have 
I also have a young son. And so we have um, child gates, sort of baby gates all over the house. And it is remarkable to see the robots sort of figure out, oh, nope, I can't go this way. And to, it goes all the way around the floor map to find another point of entry hmm. to the room that I wanted to clean. Oh, so wow. it's actually quite smart. And it's, you know, we forget, we who who, who do this professionally, um, you live in the zeros and ones and the code. And to actually see a piece of hardware, uh, take that knowledge and apply it, it is actually really, really cool, which is something that in previous uh, in previous roles, I didn't necessarily have. But but to see that mobile sensor platform take direction and utilize it and and tangibly move around its its environment and under and understand its its spatial components. Right. It's actually really fun. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about data access. We've talked a little bit about modeling. I guess kind of last question in this vein: uh, deployment. How are you deploying models uh, so that they're kind of accessible for inference? Like I'm thinking about AWS has like this green grass thing where you can like deploy models out to the edge or I'm assuming that the, the, the iRobot platforms aren't like green grass endpoints or that you're running. I don't know. You tell me, are you running like serverless model deployment on the robots and that kind of thing or how funky does it get? Yeah, so we um, we're pretty bought into the serverless architecture paradigm, and so uh, that is essentially how most of the the, the platforms run uh, okay. on our side. But in terms of deployment um, for um, for the, the the algorithms that run on the edge, we actually have um, an OTA pipe. That um, because because the, the what, what over ends the up, air like how you sorry, update thank the you, robot yes. right exactly um, I forget my TLAs aren't everybody's TLAs <laughs> three letter acronym so thank you um, yeah so um, we because these things are running uh, on a uh, autonomous vehicle I mean these mm-hmm. aren't you know on the streets they're in your homes hallways and so once uh, once we we introduce those models into the, the the platform software and we compile it and we ship it. There's a there's an extensive amount of testing that needs to happen. So that, you know, if if you're a customer and we're sending you these really cool new features, the thing you want this robot to do is vacuum your home. That's mm-hmm. what you went and, and got this robot for. So that's the thing that we never want to compromise. And we make sure that the any new features that that we introduce be them uh, uh, data scientific or not, is we have to go through this extensive uh, battery of testing to make sure that the robot still functions and it's not going to, you know, act all crazy because it's hardware. It's not just that the zeros and ones are going to fly through the screen. No, the robot uh, mm-hmm. is is a thing that can hit your puppy. So yeah. we don't we definitely don't want that to happen <laughs> ever. <laughs> so um, we don't have uh, an over the air pipe that d- delivers just new model uh, features. But what we do is we have this robust uh, system for delivery, both to factories uh, and to customers. Uh, and that's all delivered through AWS. But it's not uh, Greengrass because that would be specifically just for model deployment. Well, Angela, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me about uh, just a little bit of what you've got going on there. It sounds like really interesting stuff and, and probably that we need to like follow up at some point to go into more detail. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. I love that. And thank you so much for the opportunity to turn it out. 
Absolutely. Thanks, Angela. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.